You know, the um, first chapter of the book of Genesis is loaded with the word good. When God said, let there be light and there was light, it was good. He's a good God. The first thing that God says is not good in chapter 2 is that man should not be alone. Let's just um, de-genderise those words, even though we're talking about Adam and Eve and we know the story's there as it is, but really, you've got to hear it from the perspective. We were not created as people, male or female, to do life alone. It's not good to be alone. So there's this sense of call into fellowship, called into relationship. And you and I would both, I'm sure, have had a conversation. We know how messy that can get. Relationships are messy, right? If you're a married person here, you know how messy that can be. If you're a person aspiring to be married, get ready for mess. Um, If you've got no interest in being married, uh, you just know relationships are a mess. If that's kind of, it's like, it's just the closer you get, the more likely it is that the relationship's going to be a little bit messy is my kind of take on life. Anyway, I digress. God, however, has declared that that mess in some respects, it's the price we pay for something that's good. Our marriage, Julie's and my relationship, is good most of the time because we deal with the rubbish that's part of the mix and we don't throw the towel in when there's a lot of rubbish in the storeroom of our lives. We just we deal with it. And we, but we need to be helped to go back to the issue that God is good. So this morning's message, I invited some people that were here at 9 o'clock to stick around because I've only got the first part of the message out. And this is a really great message of encouragement to us all. Three, three points to this message. Number one is that God is real. The number one thing that we find a difficulty is to believe. We live in a secular humanist society that increasingly is telling us that people of any religious persuasion, people of faith, are simplistic or ignorant, or deceived, or whatever. What I'm trying to communicate is that the the language is critical, as in criticism critical, it's it's negative. But I gotta tell you that God's real. And God's not found by digging holes in the ground. God's not found by strapping yourself to trees. God's not found by saving the whales. Those things are all admirable in their own, however you want to view those particular issues. God's found by believing. That's it. You've got to believe. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11, which deals with the issue of faith, which is connected to, but not the same as belief, but bear with me. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And I want you to say this after me. For he who comes to God God must believe that he is. I want you to say that last bit again, must believe that he is. is. So if we're going to approach God, we've actually got to cross a bridge called belief. We've got to actually believe that he is. And I want to tell you that God is real. Um, He exists. The Bible is a book, a book of books, 66 books written over a long period of time. It was handed down in the first instance as an oral tradition. In other words, it was passed by word of mouth from one generation to the next. And it was written down uh, in a written form, um, depending on where you go to school and what you want to believe about that. There's lots of theories about who wrote what. Uh, Let's just, uh, for the sake of brevity this morning, say that it was written a long time ago Um, by wiser people than you or me, I, I would say. 
But it is still just, in some respects, it's the story of the formation of a nation. The historical part of the Old Testament is definitely that, describing the kings and the ups and downs of a, a nation that was two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. So when you read the Old Testament, you read Judah and Israel, we're talking about what it, two sections, Israel's northern current Israel and Judah's southern current Israel. They're two separate kingdoms. King Solomon's two sons couldn't get on, so the kingdom was split. It was originally one nation, Israel, that was King David's and Solomon's, but his son, Solomon's sons uh, didn't play ball and the kingdom was split into two. And so we've got Israel. So when you read, read about a king of Israel and you read about a king of Judah, we're talking about two different locations, north and south, present-day Israel, just as an aside. All that history and then the story about Jesus, whatever people think of that, he's just a historical figure. He's just, just a good man. It's all fairy tales and the stories in Revelation. Well, that's just some bloke having a trip out on drugs. It's kind of like um, whatever people want to say about it, until you cross the word of believing that God is, it's just a book of books. But the moment we believe that he's real, the book becomes alive to us and in us. And the pages of the book, the stories, the actual, the content of the stories has an incredible thread of life. The river of life is woven into the text and it's not easy to, it's not even possible to see until we believe. So I want you to say this this morning. And understand you could be in a different place to me. If you're a Christian, a Christ follower here, and I, you will have said this already in your life somewhere, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe God exists. But you might be here this morning as an inquirer. You might be one here this morning who's just seeking answers about the meaning of life. You might be on a bit of a quest to work out what matters and what doesn't matter. And I'm inviting you this morning to have a think about what you believe. And I'd love to help you because I think there's an atmosphere of faith in this place this morning for God to just knock on your door and say, what do you believe? Do you believe in me? Because I am real. And I know he could be knocking on your door right now in this meeting. So I want you to be a believer, not just a believer in stuff, but I want you to be a believer in God. Um, and once you cross that bridge, <clears throat> the whole issue of the word of God becomes something that begins to give life to you. So you can read things in the Bible. And I've discovered over the journey I've had as a Christian that there is layer upon layer upon layer upon layer ad infinitum of meaning of what God, he's, he's just buried depths of truth in his word. So, for example, when you read the first verses of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis chapter 1, starting a verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it talks about there being this... And, and the Spirit of God hovered over the darkness. And it's kind of like, hang on, it, it's dark. It's like, but God exists. So God existed in darkness. It's like, okay. Um, and then he says, let there be light. And there was light. So right there at the beginning of the Bible is Jesus Christ. Like right there. Chapter one, at the, very, is the book Genesis means beginnings. So right at the start, the first thing God creates is light. He didn't create Jesus. Just get a, theoretic, a theological problem out of the way. He didn't create Jesus, not a created being like you and I. And so this analogy is a little, a little complicated to get past. But the, the, the point is that the light, and Jesus himself said, what? I am the light of the world, amongst other things. What I'm trying to say to you is that if we begin to read the Bible, 
and we see it's not just a story. And it's not just the facts. And it's not ever just one layer of meaning. There's this incredible journey of discovery about how huge God is to be found in his word. So I want to put to you this morning, very quickly, people say, we preach the gospel. What is it that? Gospel is a word that means good news. And the good news is Jesus is the son of God. And I want to ask you again to think, what do I believe? Well, I want to tell you what I believe and what the Bible encourages all of us to think about so that we will believe. When you're praying for people, when you're praying for your friends who at the moment don't know God, it's no good telling them they should believe in God until you've done something previous uh, and you shouldn't tell them they should do anything. You should be walking with them through their life and just letting the goodness of God, because God's good, right? Say, God is good. The goodness of God just ooze out of your life. So people, have, people are meeting God when they meet you. If you're a person who claims to be a Christian, think about what God's put in your destiny. He's put other people's destiny about the way he reveals himself to the world in you and me. That's a scary thought. Whatever some people have seen of God, they've seen in you or me. What has that been? If I've bought into the lie that God's not good, I present misrepresented him. So I don't want to do that. So we want to pray for people. We pray for people who don't know him that they will believe. So first port of call. First thing a person's got to do is believe. Amen? So if you're wondering, how do I pray for my friends that don't know Jesus? Pray for them to become a believer. Someone who believes in God. And he'll take care of the rest. Once they believe, the word comes alive, becomes something that starts to create this platform of faith in their life and they begin to put their trust in God. So this is what I believe. There is only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's it. That's him, God. That he created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. This is from the Bible. I'm getting this stuff. I believe this. He created the heavens and the earth. I don't want to have a discussion with you because I don't want to end up in a place of dispute about whether I'm an evolutionist or a creationist or a hybrid version of what that is. Don't know how long it took. Some people want to get their niggers in a twist about it being just seven literal days. Other people think it's seven million years or 70 million, 700 million years. It's like we could end up separated, disputing over stuff that we actually don't know. And the book of Hebrews just cuts to the chase and says, it's by faith we believe. That's good enough for me. I believe God created it. How he did it? No idea. When he did it? No idea. Um, what the process looked like? I got no idea. All I know is I believe that he did it. That's what matters to me. I think that's what matters more to God than anything else. I believe he's holy. I believe that he loves us. Some of us are convinced that God's an, a cranky old coot up in heaven. He's, he spends his time because he's bored out of his brains up there because the angels are only singing one thing, holy, 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 holy. He's like, can't you give them a new song to sing? He, he, so he's, he's plotting a few things in heaven. So he's spending time, oh, that Bruce Williams. Yep, I'm going to set him up for a big fall this week. He's, oh, this is going to be awesome. You should see, we, we just know he's going to respond like that. He's not like that. He's up there. He's up there barracking for me. Come on, buddy, you can do it. He's got your name up there. Come on, they're cheering. Angels are up there cheering you on. Come on, God is good and he loves us. We've got no business believing the lies of the devil. He is on mission, on track, on course to repeat like Groundhog Day 
uh, Genesis chapter 3. The serpent rocks up to Eve and says, has God really said? What's that mean? Let's just rephrase that. God's not good. God can't be trusted. God's a liar. That's a bit rich coming from a liar. Um, No, no, God loves us. That's the truth. God loves you. That's the truth. Problem is, do I believe that? Do I sometimes retreat back from a situation and go, what have I done to upset God? Oh, he must be angry with me. Look at this mess I'm in. No, the mess is usually what I've made. I can't afford to live in a place of attributing cause and effect to the difficulties of my life means God's not happy with me. That's a lie from the pits of hell. God loves you. I want you to say that. God loves me. Got that. He desires communion and relationship with us. So it's not like, oh, I love, I love Josh, but please stay a million miles away, mate. You know, I, just, I don't want anything to do with you, but I love you, brother. It's like, God's not like that. I love Murray Seymour, but uh, no, we won't hang out. So, okay, he's got a wife, he's got family, he's got business, he'll be all right, but I love him. No, no, God's love is like, let me in. Love equals connection. Love equals proximity. Love equals like... It, it just equals being near each other. Um, so he desires communion with us, but there's a problem. He's never, ever connected to sin. God can't sin, has never sinned. He's never made a mistake, but we have. And one of the problems that we've got that originated in that original deceit from the serpent in the Garden of Eden, that story helps us to understand the problem is this, we are open to the possibility that God's bad. And that's what separates us. And that's what is the problem, is this chasm between us and God. He can't connect, never has connected himself in any way, shape or form to sin. Problem is, we are all connected to sin. Just saying, not casting judgment on anybody, but I sort of, I think that we've all got the capacity to, at the very least, just be a little bit self-centered, self-absorbed, self-preservation. It's all about me in varying degrees. Some of us think, oh, I'm not like that. Well, I can guarantee if I spent long enough with you, I could definitely find something that I could be critical of. And even if I couldn't, but I did, that would probably cause you to get a little bit antsy. That's sin. You know, it's like... The devil's crafty. He's a crafty beast. He's looking for any avenue he can get in there to unravel your sense of who God is and how good God is. Say it again. God is good. Attitude. God is good. Come on. Some of you got that. So we're all connected to sin. So we have a connection problem with God because of sin. Building new mobile phone towers won't reconnect us with God. Putting up more worship songs won't like being more committed to something won't connect us to God. Being more anything, oh, just serve. Would you allow people to serve? Just be, be at everything. Oh, I am at everything, but I still feel like rubbish. Why is that? Because the problem's not the stuff we do. That doesn't do anything to connect us to God. It's a wonderful thing to do when we are connected to God, to serve and to be part of his kingdom. But To do that without the connection to him is a complete waste of time. There's nothing you and I can do. There's nothing we can do in the way of works that fixes the problem of us being separated from God. We can't do a thing. Because if we could, a logical person would say, then there's no point for Jesus to have come 2,000 years ago. There's nothing we can do. 
So we've got a connection problem with God because of sin. We're disconnected to Him. So people are disconnected from God. So what is the solution to that? God, however, has provided a means to resolve that connection problem. Let me say that again. God has. Say God has. You and I didn't wake up one day and think, Houston, we have a problem. Before you were even a blink in your parents' eyes and multiple generations before that, God had already initiated this. He solved the problem. He immediately solved the problem when it happened in the Garden of Eden. That set in train the story of the Bible, which is a story about the journey to Christ coming, Christ living a perfect, sinless life. Say sinless. You'll get the importance of this in a minute. Jesus lived a sinless life, was crucified, dead, put in a hole in the ground, cave, whatever, rose from the dead third day, died on a Friday, was alive again on the following Sunday. The Bible then describes him sending his Holy Spirit, him disappearing into heaven. Some weird, in the sense of like spectacularly supernatural stories there. The book of Acts then is full of miracles happening as the church is birthed in the world. Like, The whole thing, the gospel, the good news is Jesus came to bridge the gap. It's Jesus. There's nothing else. There's nothing else you can do or be or become or try to do that can fix the problem that only God can, and that is Jesus Christ, his son, who was sinless. God is connected to him. I'll never leave you nor forsake you is a scripture. Yet on the cross, at the very last point, Jesus himself says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I had a revelation as I was preparing this message. I was sitting up in my office and praying about it and thought, how do we explain that sacrifice thing? It's like, it's, it's like for us, in the, it's like, what is that? And I got this sense, and I wrote this sentence out as a result of that. Jesus was sinless. In other words, while he was on planet Earth, he didn't do anything wrong. He was perfect. In other words, he was not disconnected from his father like we are. Yet, every person who's lived, past, present, and future, is disconnected to God. And so, in a manner of speaking, we're forsaken of God. We can't actually connect with him. And in a blink, I'd love to be able to open the timeline up when Jesus breathed his last breath. Not to see the macabre side of it, but to see what happened in the spiritual realm. Just open up the timeline. Because the picture I saw as I was praying about this was all the sin of every one of us, past, present, and future, in a moment of time, landed on Jesus. Because I worked out that the day I die is the day I stop having evil thoughts. The day I die is the moment I stop sinning. If I was a person who was having an affair and I died, the affair's over. If I was embezzling money, the day I died, the embezzlement stops. You get what I'm saying? So when we die, that is the end of the deal. When Jesus died, he was sinless. So he didn't actually deserve to die and didn't need to die because he wasn't separated from God, but he chose to willingly go to the cross to die. And at the split second that he actually is dead, he's disconnected from God because of all our sin. 
How incredible is that? It's like, and that's the moment where you and I set free. That, is the, that happened 2,000 years ago. That's the moment our sin went down the gurgler. That doesn't mean we can't do the wrong thing anymore. doesn't mean we're not able to be sinful because we are. But what it means is the power of sin to keep us connected, disconnected from God has been rendered powerless. And we're reconnected with him and he sees us through his son who is sinless. And so all of the sin fell off the world, so to speak, onto his son, through his son, because he was raised to life again and he was changed. This is the gospel. This is what we believe. God wasn't finished, though, with Jesus dying on the cross. He rose to life again, changed, eternal, immortal, never to die again, and offers us the same deal. You come to me and believe, you'll live forever. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 16. It's like... He's not saying, oh, that's just going to be for a select few. No, whosoever. Whosoever believes, not whosoever does. Whosoever pays. Whosoever's got the most money. Whosoever's got the most university degrees. Whosoever's got the most political clout. No, no, whoever, whosoever believes. So it really matters to God, and it really matters to me this morning on this message, what you believe. I need to do whatever I can to help you shift, if you need to shift, down the road from unbelief to belief. If you believe God's bad today, I want you to start thinking, no, God's good. I want you to start believing God's awesome. God's got everything for me and it's good. Even if in the middle of his good plan, I hit a wall. If in the middle of his good things for me, I find myself in a complete mess, I think there's evidence there's a relationship going on. So he invites us to believe in him and what he's done for us. And he sent his spirit to teach and guide us into his purpose. That is the Bible, um, Bruce Williams' paraphrased version. 66 books in 15 minutes. So first point is God's real. I can't prove that to you. All I can live out is my life as a believer and hoping and praying that you can see God in me. You can see God in us. As a church, people walk into the door of this church. My prayer is that they get to be able to believe that God is real and God is good because they see that on us. Um, so God's real is my first point. Second point, which I didn't get to. This is, a, I got to I just wet the whistle in the first service. Second point, God's got a plan for your life. Some of us are people who are planners and we've got plans for our life. We make plans. 21st century, have you ever been asked this question? What qualifications do you have? Qualifications are kind of like the bee's knees in 21st century. You've got to be qualified. You want to change a PowerPoint, you've got to have an electrician's license. You've got to be qualified. You want to do this, you've got to be qualified. You want to become a financial advisor, you've got to be qualified. You want to become a, a, um, a whatever. You want to become a doctor, you've got to be qualified. You want to become a brain surgeon, you need qualifications. That's a good thing. Um, you know, you don't want me operating your brain. I tell you, that would be messy. I'd pass out the first moment the scalpel touched your scalp. I'd be gone. So that, that would be a good thing for you. We saved me making a mess in there. <laughs> so my point is, we, we, we know what qualifications are. The world tells us what qualifications are. We've got student counsellors over decades encouraging young people to get to university, to get a university degree, to get qualified. Guess what? 
God's not really all that fussed about your qualifications. And I don't say that to be derogatory, rude, or divisive. I say it as a blunt reality check about what matters. Your qualifications clearly make a lot of difference to the way you live and what you do with your life as a human being. So I'm not saying that that's irrelevant as far as its capacity to take you through the journey of life. So, and I'm not for one moment belittling the, the value of being well-educated. So don't hear that from what I'm saying here. I'm trying to emphasise something that's way more important, however, and that is that God's not looking at our qualifications. He's looking at his purpose. And I can prove this to you from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. There's a guy who lives in Bethlehem. His name's Jesse. He's got eight sons, the youngest of whom is a little red-headed, scrappy-looking kid, although he apparently looked pretty handsome, called David. He's kind of the, the runt of the litter. And he's sent out to do what the youngest son in that era does well, just get out of the house, get out from under our feet, just go and look after the sheep, because you're a bit of a tosser, mate. He's not well liked by his brothers. You could read that in amongst the, the narrative of the story. He's actually not qualified for lots, especially the way the world sees it. So Samuel the prophet, he's a guy in the Old Testament. The books of First and Second Samuel are written about the story of Samuel or part thereof and his influence as a prophet. And God speaks to him and says, I've chosen one of his sons, Jesse's sons, to be king. Now, in our world, we'd put an advert in LinkedIn and we'd ask for a CV, qualifications. There's a job going. We need the, the most qualified person to do it. Right? That's not how God operates. God sends Samuel, he's a pretty influential guy, down to Bethlehem and he says, well, kind of, if they see me coming, they'll all start kind of peeing their pants a bit because um, they might even rise up and try to kill me because I'll scare them. He must have been a scary dude. And God says, no, just get down there and stop being an idiot. Just, just go down there and tell them you come down and invite them to come to the sacrifice. And this is kind of, you can read this in chapter 16. And uh, Samuel meets Eliab, um, David's oldest brother, and he's big, built like a machine, built like Arnold Schwarzenegger walks in. And Samuel's been told by God, I've chosen a son to be the king. He's already, even a man of God, he's got his, he's got his qualifications badge on. I'm looking for the qualification of big, strong, and, uh, but there's no, there's no voice from heaven. He says, well, there is a voice, <laughs> No, he's not the one. And so he gets, goes through seven sons and he eventually gets a little bit despondent and he says to Jesse, you got any more boys? Oh, I got this guy, David. He's down the paddy looking after a few sheep, scrabbly sheep. Go and get him. And as soon as he walks in the room, God says to Samuel, rise up and anoint that boy. He's the one I've chosen. Say chosen. chosen. Your qualifications in this world do not qualify you to be chosen. God chooses who he chooses. But I want to tell you this, you are chosen. 
You're chosen for a mission. You're chosen for a plan. God's got a plan for your life. I've got no doubt about that. But you don't have to have qualifications the way the world sees it in order to be chosen. The qualifications and the journey you make through life probably will equip you to do what you need to do when you're chosen, but being chosen is not on, a, on account of your qualification. Am I making my point clear? Good. <clears throat> Even Jesus got hammered by this. The question was changed by whose authority? Whose authority? What's your qualification for casting out demons? What's your qualification for healing a person on the Sabbath? Couldn't that wait till tomorrow when it wasn't the holy day? It's like, what, you know, by what authority are you doing this? They wanted to know what his qualifications were. He, he didn't have to. He was chosen. But the Lord said in verse 7 of Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. That's the other brother. The Lord looks, does not look at the things that people look at. Just let that sink in. God does not look at what other people look at when they look, he's looking at you. He's seeing something completely different than when I look at Nathan, I see Nathan. But I can always guarantee that whatever I think of Nathan, whatever I see of Nathan, and I love Nathan, he's a great brother um, in the Lord and great friend, but I don't still, even though I love him as a brother, don't look at him like God does. I can't. I've got filters on. He's got filters on. He's got barriers up. I've got barriers up. It's like as much as when we like somebody, we peel those layers off, I can never look at Nathan like God does. And God chose him. God chooses him. He's chosen Simon and George to go to Parkside. Why, why them? Why couldn't it be me? Because God chose them. Isn't there a more qualified couple to go down there? Undoubtedly there could be, but they're not chosen. So why go? Got to be chosen. So I want you to say this after me. I am chosen. <clears throat> now you're not chosen to do what I'm doing, <clears throat> and I'm not chosen to do what you're doing, but mark my words, God's got a plan for your life. And you don't have to go to university to work that out, to be chosen. You might have to go to university to actually do it. And then I'll explain that as we go. This message is going to be, what am I doing time-wise? Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> um, chosen. All right. And this, this is the clincher. Okay. So this is where the, we connect ourselves to the qualifications. This is my third point. God's plans. Always. Say always. No, no, that, that's not good enough. Always, Always. involves connections with other people. Always. Even Jesus himself, the Son of God, this is a this will blow your mind and you think about it. His mission whilst on earth for three years, his ministry, the recognition of who he was. The voice from heaven declaring who he was was all in the hands of John the Baptist. If John the Baptist had been disobedient and not done what he was called to do, prepare that way, I would put it to you without being heretical that Jesus would not have been able to do what Jesus did. In other words, chosen, the Son of God, chosen his Life's mission on earth was in the hands of another man. Your chosen destiny in God, I guarantee, will be in someone else's, maybe plural, hands. You've got to find those people. You've got to let them get to know you. 
You've got to have the conversations. You've got to fight the battles. You've got to have the arguments. You've got to, you've got to put the sword to a few things. You've got to actually celebrate a few things. Somewhere in the middle of those connections, God is going to give you what you need to be qualified to do what he's chosen you to do. How cool is this? This line of thinking is just like mind-blowing awesome. I love this message. It's so cool. So David, he's just this kid. He goes down to a, a battle line. L- listen to this. There's a huge dude called Goliath stirring up the pot. He's a Philistine. He's an evil big beast. And he's nine foot nine tall, I think he was, if you do the conversion in the thing. That's a big dude. Like this ceiling bulkhead, the lower part of this ceiling is three meters. He's, he's about three inches below the, the ceiling out there. Just out there where you are, Dave. Just look at the ceiling, mate. That, the guy's head's up there. Big, ugly, flipping beast he was. He's out there hurling abuse at the Israelites day in, day out. And David's minding his own business. Samuel's anointed him. David's gone back to looking after sheep. The brothers have gone down because they're warriors. They've gone down to fight. But they're all pooping their pants in fear of this big guy, Goliath. And it just appears to be a very incidental instruction from his dad. Say incidental. You've had an incidental conversation with somebody. Somebody incidentally sent you on a mission for God. Someone incidentally opened the door for you. His father, Jesse, says, hey, gather up some food and go down there and feed your brothers, would you? Little did David know his destiny was in that, in that instruction. Would you like to serve on the coffee team? No, not my thing. What if it's got your destiny in it? What if God, through something menial, and I don't mean that if you're on the coffee team, you're menial, but what I'm saying, I'm trying to say, we look at some of these things as like, that's not the plan. I don't plan to make coffee at church, but what if your future is in the coffee team? And I don't mean being on it forever, but what if somebody on that team is the kind of person that can incidentally say something to you that catapults you into the next chapter? So David finds himself down there trying to feed his brothers. And again, his brother sort of says, what are you doing down here, you scrawny little runt? Go home. You're a misfit. Get out of here. And David's not put off by that. He goes, what's going on? What's going on? Oh, this big brute Goliath is giving us a hard time, but don't worry about it. You just, you've got nothing to do with it, mate. Get out of here. Waste of space. And David's not put off. He says, well, who the heck does this guy think he is? This big uncircumcised Philistine, who does he think he is? Speaking like he is to us, children of God. I'll sort him out. Everybody starts laughing at him. It's like this big, he's not qualified, but he is chosen. He's not qualified to kill a guy like that, but he's chosen. Saul tries to put, the king tries to put his armor on him. David says, I can't fight the guy in this. He says, I can't can't even move. He's like, he's he's sort of glued to the ground with this massive armor of a, and Saul's a big guy as well. David's not says no let me go he gets out his sling he goes down there and stands and the bible describes it something got on him destiny got on him destiny changed him from being one of the hundreds and hundreds of soldiers that were quaking in their boots to a man possessed by the spirit of god who ran towards goliath said the bible describes he ran toward him he ran towards the obstacle said get out of my way get out of the destiny i've got a destiny to he knew what he was doing. The Bible describes him throwing a rock through a sling. Gets Goliath smack in the middle of his forehead. Takes him down. Doesn't kill him. 
on the spot. It says that David went up there and grabbed the big beast sword. I don't know how he lifted that. It probably weighed about 40 kilos. That's the end of Goliath. Then he is dead. And of course, everyone's celebrating. David becomes a hero. Incidental moment. So he kills him, this big beast. I'm coming towards the close here very quickly. But it's still David. Still, it's not clear to anybody in the story even how on earth is this kid going to become the king? Well, it turns out that Saul's pretty impressed with him and says, who's that guy? Who is that guy? And he says, oh, it's one of the sons of Jesse from Bethlehem. Bring him here. And so Saul invites him to come and live in the palace. Well, Saul goes mad. The story gets bad. <laughs> but Saul's got a son called Jonathan. Say, Jonathan. There's a Jonathan in your life. In Emma's case, that's true. Um, but there will be Jonathans, perhaps. Jonathan is the rightful heir to the throne. He's got an inheritance, a kingdom to inherit. He's got an army to lead. He's a soldier. And he meets David. And in chapter 18, now when he'd finished, starting at verse 1, speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. That's pretty close friendship. Just saying. Saul took him uh, that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan, listen to this, took off. Oh my gosh, get this. Jonathan took off his robe that was on him and gave it to David. He took off his own destiny. He took off what was rightfully his and he gave it to the one that God chose. Somebody, somewhere, somewhere in your life has handed over their rightful inheritance, maybe their own sense of destiny. If they've given it to you, oh gosh, do, do not stuff it up. Somebody paid for our faith. I've told you before I've been to Europe and cried in cathedrals that are now like mausoleums because I realised that the blood of the martyrs in Europe means that I'm here today as a believer in Christ. So I am at the end of this message. Jonathan could have resented, could have been threatened by, could have done what Saul did and it was be threatened by and then go nuts trying to kill David because it's like obviously David's taken over the whole world and it's like oh, the end of the world. Jonathan's just relinquished it. He said, I want you to have it. I want you to stand to your feet. Three things I've said this morning that I want you to take home with you and do something with. Believe that God is real. I want you to believe that God's got a plan for your life. It definitely needs you and I to spend time in prayer with God by ourselves, but I want you to understand this. What he's got for you, I almost guarantee, will be in the hands of another person. Get to know them. Friendships at church, people that are next door neighbours. What do you believe? 
sorry I've gone a little over time this morning, guys, but I wanted to get this message out because it's just so blinking helpful. You go on down the story of First Samuel and you'll find Jonathan's just at every turn doing everything he can to set David up to win. Find your Jonathan. Look out for them. Listen to their voice. Listen to their counsel. So some questions to finish with. Do I need to shift my view of any of my close relationships? Because they might be the ones that hold bits and pieces of the destiny. Do I need to shift how I respond to invitations to serve? The context of serving might be a big piece of God's plan. And finally, do I need to shift my belief system out of this world and into his kingdom.